Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for joining us for a special edition of On DoD on Federal News Network. And this hour, it's a deep dive on defense health care. It's a little bit hard to believe, but last month marked the 10-year point since DoD first stood up the Defense Health Agency. And to put it mildly, there's been an evolution in DHA's mission since then. The initial idea was to have it be largely a shared services provider to help improve the efficiency and effectiveness and uh, simplicity of the overall military health system. Fast forward a decade, though, and DHA is actually in charge of running most or all of the military treatment facilities, plus the TRICARE health plan, plus DOD's unified electronic health record, plus medical logistics, plus a lot of other things I'm sure I'm leaving out. And for the next hour or so, we're very glad to have with us Lieutenant General Talita Crossland, who became DHA's director earlier this year. It's a great chance to talk about where the agency's been, but mostly where it's going. And a lot of that is laid out in a new strategic plan DHA just published a couple months ago. And that plan's going to form the basis of a lot of our conversation today. General Crossland, thanks for doing this. Um, and, and, and let's start with that plan. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it is it's, it's quite a bit more detailed than some of the five-year strategies we tend to see from government organizations. You know, get us started with some of the basics about what you're trying to communicate to the agency itself and all your other stakeholders about what you think you need to be doing between now and 2028. Hey, Karen, thank you. And thanks for the opportunity to be with you uh, today to have this, what I think is uh, hopefully uh, informative conversation. The word you said really jumps out at what I was trying to accomplish with the strategy, which was communication, a better, more detailed communication of what the agency is focused on and what we're going to do going forward. Uh, as you noted in your introduction, um, the DHA has evolved from shared services and over the last decade, particularly the last five years, has experienced a lot of change. Um, we were in the throes of transition quite a bit. And uh, coming in as a director, I thought it was important that we settle, if you will, that we, we focus on now the transition is over and how are we going to go about executing this incredible mission we've been given uh, on behalf of the Department of Defense and support of the military departments and the COCONs. And so with that in mind, we, we embarked on a pretty ambitious strategy to move the organization from transition to execution. And I thought it was extremely important that all our stakeholders see themselves in our strategy, which is one of the reasons you see so much detail in the strategy. And as we built the strategy, it was equally important that we take it as a collaborative approach. Uh, And so early on, um, after my confirmation and as I prepared to assume the job, I got to work with the the medical departments as well as the uniformed services, uh, the joint staff teammates, and industry partners to give me some ideas, to give me thoughts on what the current state is, what the current needs are, And then for us to look at what the opportunities are that we as an agency can move towards going forward. Fundamental to our strategy is we really do have to evolve healthcare. The the current state of healthcare in our country, as well as in the military health system, is not positioned for what we all need going forward to improve health and build readiness. And so with that in mind, again, got the right folks together and, and then pretty aggressively and pretty early on came up with the strategy that you referenced. 
And it's interesting to hear you say that the transition's over because over these last 10 years that I've talked about, it's been, it seems like a continuous state of transition. Some of it internally self-directed, some of it directed by Congress. What are the most important things that you think have actually been accomplished over the past few years to, to put you in a place where you can say the transition is is complete or, or fundamentally complete? Um, first, you know, we got that input and guidance, both from Congress and from within the department. So step one is a vision of where the DHA should be on behalf of the DOD and the mission set and getting clarity on that. So I think my predecessors, as well as the last 10 years, has kind of honed us in to this is what our mission set is. And as you described, the last piece of that was moving the military treatment facilities, medical research and development, and public health. Those were the last pieces that moved over in the last three to five years. Uh, And now that that's done, and my predecessors, as well as department leadership, very much focused on getting that done. What does done mean? It means moving the dollars. It means moving the resources. It means for me as a director to give clarity on what the mission set is now that DHA has all of that under it. And that that was a big part of what the strategy was meant to do, which was to say, okay, now we're here. What are we going to do with all of this responsibility that has transitioned over the last decade? And how do we run it as an integrated healthcare system to improve the health of all our beneficiaries, many who get care within TRICARE, as well as those in a direct system, because when we do that, we support the DOD's mission of readiness. Yeah, on, on that point, that's that's actually where I was going to go next on your point about the need to to evolve healthcare, and, and and we'll talk in a lot more specifics about what that looks like as as we go here. But it seems to me that the organization you run is is just fundamentally more of a challenge than any other large health system because of that sort of bifurcation. I mean, you now have more direct control and centralization over the military side of the health system than I think DOD has ever had. But that's, as you just referenced, only part of the equation. There's also this large purchased care system. So you've got to try to integrate those two very different things together. Just talk about that challenge for a second, if you would, and, and how you think about that, uh, those those two legs of the stool. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question. The way I actually look at that is when you when you say the word military health system, the M is the first letter. And if I, as a director and the DHA, keep that in mind, that is what is unique about our mission set. It's not a bifurcation, it's the mission set, right? And visualizing it as divergent and bifurcation makes it much more complicated and complex to run because that meant we're we're, we're not seeing the totality of the mission, which is a military health system. And so how do we literally get after that? The first is, is, what's our priorities as a military health system, right? Which is the active duty, direct care, focused family care system, as well as the purchase care system, as well as supporting care in a deployed setting on a battlefield, right? So what are the priorities of that system? Because that's the system I'm a part of, right? And the first priority is to keep the force healthy and ready to deploy and win our nation's wars. That's everybody's responsibility in the system. The second is to make sure the medical force is trained and ready to deploy and win our nation's wars. The third priority is to be able to receive casualties along the continuum of care, from point of injury all the way back into our Walter Reeds, our Brook Army Medical Centers, our San Diego's, right? All our large MTFs, 
play a significant role in supporting the operational force across the continuum of care. And then the fourth thing we must do is deliver a benefit that's legislated to almost 10 million very special Americans that either served in a uni uniform, their family served with them in uniform, or are currently on active duty and with their family members. And so when you frame it that way, then it makes it much more of a cogent strategy. And for us as an agency, gives us a clarity on how we need to move out. And I don't see it as divergent. I see it as the totality of the mission side. Yeah, the mission makes sense to me. I, I, I'm curious how far along you are in sort of figuring out as a practical matter what that full integration looks like. Is that a, is that a you know, future state where you figure out uh, what, what integration really means? Or, or do you have in your head right now what that looks like? Oh, absolutely. Um, and so when we say integrated, uh, a good example, working with our managed care support contractor, uh, I'll pick one, the one on the East Coast, Humana. When we look at, when the agency looks at healthcare and we look at what Humana does for us for in support of our mission set, we consciously make decisions on where that care is delivered, how best to organize that care, whether it's inside of a military treatment facility or in the network, and how to pay for that care, right? So that's when I say integrated, I see the totality of the mission set. In some cases, the best care for the system is inside a military treatment facility. In some cases, the best care, the availability of that care is in the network. And talking at the um, managed care support contractor level, which we do regularly, is a conscious decision on how much care we, we try to keep inside of our system versus how much care we purchase. And we do that bumping it against those four priorities I laid out. The services obviously have a huge role in manning the facilities. We work with the Army, Navy, Air Force on actually doing that. Uh, and so it is a complex mission set, but we are executing it with the framework that the entire system is integrated, not independent. Where I make decisions, we look at just the direct system independent of the network. We look at the direct system only in the lens of taking care of active duty and active duty family members. We look at the network system, we don't do that. We look at it all comprehensively. And so when we talk about modernization, modernizing our healthcare system, we're going after things in our strategy that address all 10 million beneficiaries, all right? We look at it as how do we, how do we deliver care to 10 million beneficiaries when our priorities are those four things we laid out and they are part of our solution set in some cases and how do we make that make sense? Whether we use a new virtual platform, right? Whether we, we do um, virtual encounters, how do we see all 10 million so that we can run the system in an integrated fashion? Talking with Lieutenant General Talita Crossland, the director of the Defense Health Agency, We'll come back and talk more about DHA's strategic plan and a whole lot more after a quick break. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And we're talking with Lieutenant General Talita Crossland, the director of the Defense Health Agency. And before the break, we were talking a bit about how you think through decisions about how care is delivered. 
are those decisions made differently based on where in the world you're talking about, what population you're trying to serve? Because you, you, you can't do a one-size-fits-all, obviously, for, for all the population you serve around the world. Absolutely. So one of the things um, I, I pushed really hard early on was to get these defense health networks stood up for the very reason that you're alluding to. Uh, the agency is global, and the healthcare challenges, needs, requirements really are ultimately executed at a local level. And so getting nine senior folks, flag officers and general officers in place to help me, the director, and, and uh, the deputy director and the leadership team at this level make those decisions, it was key that we get those leaders in place to help us get after some of those unique requirements and challenges that have to be managed at the tactical level, but integrate it with our managed care support contractors. So what we're able to do and provide in the location in New Mexico looks very different than what we're able to do and provide in an urban area like where I'm at in the national capital region. And the way we orchestrate that is through these networks who interface with the agency and the managed care support contractors to do it in a, in a holistic look, not a siloed look. Yeah, let's stick with that topic of the, the new networks that you just announced uh, maybe a month or two ago at this point. You know, as a practical matter, how does the organization of the system look different under those networks than what you had before that rollout? Yeah, uh, we call it the DHA advancement because for me, it was the advancement from transition. So back to your earlier point in my, my comments that, you know, my predecessors got all the requirements and all the dollars and all the people moved. And then what I did was take that from 23 markets, and I advanced that to nine FOGO LEDs. So at a very tactical granular level, I simply aligned more MTFs under an FOGO versus having them dispersed, trying to work in smaller pods. I put them in a more geographical alignment under an FOGO, bringing it to nine versus 23, which allows us to do a couple of things more effectively. It allows me as a director to see the system, right? It was very difficult to see and, and, and know what's going on across that much of a span of reporting. So it allowed me to be able to see and it allowed us to be able to communicate and get unity of effort. It also allowed me to interface with the services who we directly support a little more efficiently and certainly more effectively because those Flag officers and general officers also wear uniforms. So that's an interface for Army, Navy, and Air Force at that flag officer and general officer's level that allows me a little more ability to communicate at the right level to make decisions and get things accomplished uh, across the entire system moving in the same direction. So that's what the nine networks did. It really didn't get rid of anything. It rearranged things in a more cogent way for me to lead, and I believe for my headquarters to be more effective, and most importantly, for the military treatment facilities and all of those teammates in the field to be heard. They now have a much cleaner route to coming up to amplify what their challenges are, and for me to give good guidance and direction um, for them to move forward. Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I know it's early days yet, but but can you give us some sense of the you know, the, the, the increased insight that you now have as a headquarters level as those information flows are kind of rearranged and consolidated? Yeah, yeah. One of the big insights is, is that um, if you take, um, let's take the Pacific. The Pacific was a huge, it's a very large 
a span of control. And Japan has different issues than Korea. And Korea has different healthcare issues than Hawaii, which has a large army medical center with large Navy and Air Force forces present. Having them as discrete networks allows their issues to come up and then for us to give guidance and direction that affect that AOR, if you will, more effectively. And I imagine we'll talk a little bit about Japan, but that would be a good example of how we were able to, I won't say isolate, but be able to focus on what the true issues are and not see the entire AOR and not understand that the issue in Japan is very specific, very different from the issue in Korea. And then we can apply solution sets real time and move out a little more um, um, precisely, but also more definitively. Um, uh, and so that would be one example. Another example is um, we support the services. Uh, again, in the Indo-Pacific, there may be an operational challenge that's going on that medical is supporting. Now, Admiral, in this case, Admiral Valdez, who related to me last week, that challenge came up. He, because he's an, a flag officer and also has the command in that area, and he has the ADC in that area, was able to work with the Navy, the MTFs, to resolve that issue. So very quickly, the problem popped. Very quickly, the leader with the right authorities, understanding, development, and resources made a decision, and very quickly we resolved it. Yeah, let's let's dig a bit more into Japan since since you brought it up. This is a, as good a time as any. Um, and folks may have seen this in the news last year. There was what civilians in the population there would describe as a healthcare crisis. So that it, and, and and to be clear, by statute, they have been technically served on a space available basis for as long as there has been defense healthcare overseas, but. As a practical matter, they had been getting much of their health care from DHA, and then suddenly it was less available. And it happened rather suddenly, I think they would tell you. How, how, how did a situation like that come up where they didn't see this coming, they didn't know that they were going to be, in many cases, cut off from care? And is what you're doing now going to prevent that sort of thing or be more able to prevent that sort of thing in the future? Yeah. So another reason the nine networks are very helpful to me is, is I, I think in the previous model, we isolated a policy. And that's why if you're the if you're Japan, in that area, the policy did change, right? We, we pushed a policy that felt to them, and it effectively made them getting access to space a more complicated and more difficult. And we did that, because when you objectively looked at the challenges those treatment facilities were having, they were having trouble meeting the demand of the active duty and active duty family member. And so that's why the team made the decisions that they made. What we have since done is, is we've gone back and we've sat down with those military treatment facilities and we've worked through what their challenges are on meeting their demands and we've unencumbered them to support the Space A on the same footing they had previously supported the Space A. Right. And so we did that part. That was the, the memo that came from the agency, I, I guess, in about February, March time frame was say, time out. We really do have some capacity. Um, let's maximize our capacity for all beneficiaries in Japan, our active duty, active duty family members, their tools we have to make sure they get in. But we shouldn't make the tools so tight that space A can't get in. That wasn't. So we pulled back on that. And, the, and all the uh, 
military troop facilities in Japan are able to see Space A and pretty close back to where they were before the, um, the policy that had, that had created all the angst. So we're back to where we were. But fundamentally, the bigger challenge for us is, is that we do have a, a large portion of DOD civilians who, as you point out, in statute, get care from the Defense Health Agency on a space available basis. The model itself has created challenges, and there is a lot of work going, honest work going to look at that model and see what else can we offer as a DOD outside of DHA. So DHA is maximizing within the statutes what it, it can provide, but what else can we do to support our DOD teammates that are in Japan? And the higher you know, uh, personnel and readiness, along with the Assistant Secretary of Health Affairs is working overtime with the, the services, the military departments in particular, as well as the COCOMs to see what are the other opportunities to improve their healthcare opportunity, the healthcare access over in Japan. And I'm sure you don't want to. Separate from DHA. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that, that's exactly what I was about to ask. I'm sure you don't want to get ahead of OSD on, on decisions here. But, but yeah, those other options would be non-DHA options, it sounds like. Exactly. And DHA is helping shape those options. We're, we're, we're good teammates at the table because we understand the tactical situation, probably uniquely with respect to health care, because we have family members and the dependents there. And we're sharing those understandings uh, as part of the DOD team to to try to um, uh, mitigate some of those gaps that our DOD civilians are experiencing. All right. We need to take a short break here. We're going to come back and talk more about defense health care in detail with Lieutenant General Talia Crossland, the director of the Defense Health Agency, back in just a minute on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we continue our conversation with Lieutenant General Talita Crossland, the director of the Defense Health Agency. And General Crossland, I want to kind of take us back to where we ended uh, the, the last segment. Uh, you know, the, one of the points that the, the new strategic plan makes is that you want to start thinking about combatant commanders as the customer for healthcare delivery and, and have sort of tailorable packages that can go into each of their AORs. Tell, tell us a little bit more about how you think about that, that, that concept of the COCOMs as the customers here. Yeah, uh, one of the um, responsibilities the Defense Health Ag- Agency has is that we're a combat support agency. And when you go to actually executing what it means to be a CSA, it is to support the combatant commands with, I, I'll call it strategic reach back, right? And so uh, a good example will be is if we looked at current operations, or we looked at operations over the last few years, what did COCOMs need from the Defense Health Agency to support those operations? In some cases, they needed the managed care support contract, the ISOS, to help manage the flow of casualties. Uh, And so how are we able as an agency to provide that resource to a COCOM, pointed at the COCOM, that's a tailored package, to deliver against that capability? In other cases, it may be that the agency is responsible for supporting uh, the casualty evacuation once they come into a Lonsdale and they get back to the United States, right? So how do we support the movement of individuals from a theater back into our role for large medical treatment facilities? How do we support uh, requirements for blood 
in an operation. And the agency is positioned to be able to provide teams to point at COCOMs to get after that requirement. I think step one for me was to identify what is in the agency's toolkit to support the COCOMs. Uh, and we've done that with a memo to the chairman acknowledging that we're a combat support agency. Here are the functions that we as an agency will do to support COCOMs and military departments. And here's how, and we're being assessed right now, how well we're able to do that and perform against those functions. Uh, and so that's how I conceptualize being a CSA and how we support, support the COCOMs. I, I, am I wrong about this? I, I thought DHA had always been formally designated as a combat support agency. Is it mostly just a, a matter of emphasis and a mindset change on that? Um, I think, uh, so in answer to your question, yep, DHA was designated as a CSA from the beginning. For me, it's just translating, when you say the word CSA, what does it look like at execution? And so, yep, we're CSA, and we have uh, LNOs, right, liaisons in all the COCOMs now, and what do those LNOs actually do to support the COCOMs? And should hostilities or conflict arise, what can those COCOMs expect from the DHA? That's really been my focus, is to be able to answer those questions in a demonstrable way. It's really about how well we're going to uh, bring in an effect, how well we're going to perform and manage that expectations uh, so that we're resourced to do what we need to do. I want to pivot a little bit here to technological modernization because, and this actually is something that the agency has been focused on since the beginning with, uh, with J6s under your predecessors really have been looking for technological improvements across the system this entire time. Now that you're, you know, past that transition phase, what are the, the technology possibilities that you see now ahead? Yeah, um, Jared, thanks for that question, because I think that this is probably um, the biggest opportunity our military health system and the DHA have going forward to do good for the DOD. And um, we, I believe, are uniquely positioned for a couple of reasons. The first is, is as many of you know, we rolled out the military health system, MHS Genesis, that electronic record. And by the end of the calendar year, 99.8%, I'm sure there'll be one or two locations that have not fully moved to MHS Genesis. And the big so what of that is, is when we're all on the same platform, when we add technology, we can do it at scale and we can do it at speed. And we have a broad range of scope that we can impact and my job readily is to narrow the scope on a couple of key things. And, and so in our strategic plan, we're focusing on leveraging technology that we're going to scale across the enterprise, focusing on primary care and behavioral health. And literally, we have five locations that are to be determined publicly. So we have five locations that are going to be a bit of our incubator. Because I think we have to not think, I know we have to demonstrate new behaviors. We have to move a little more with agility, a little more with uh, speed, if we're going to be able to take technology, assess it, and then give it to the field to bring value. Um, and so, yep, all my predecessors, medicine, I think writ at large is recognizing uh, that technology, whether it be a virtual encounter, whether it be chat box, whether it be what's coming in the future with AI, is the future of medicine. And medicine will get disrupted if we don't manage that, that opportunity, if you will. If we continue to do medicine the way we've always done it, I think we do a disservice to our patients, but I also think we're gonna do a disservice to medicine writ at large because we will get disrupted and folks will be able to 
uh, go directly to patients and monitorize medical. Chat GPT will be giving medical advice and it may or may not be the best medical advice. TikTok will be putting out medicine. And, and so as a healthcare system, we've got to kind of harness that. We've got to wait in that space. We've got to focus on how we get down to the individual level with tools uh, to help people be healthier. And the last thing I'll say is, is, is that this is really a cultural change in medicine. It's not, ju- it's not the technology, it's how we leverage the technology and change how we deliver care to all the, all the beneficiaries we are, we're privileged to serve. And so for us, this is a big deal. It's a big deal because right now we have a system that says, we value you coming to see us, you coming through our door, we value what we do to you. Um, and we've got to turn that on its head. We, we need to value how we keep you healthy. We need to value how we put certain tools in your hand to not become a patient. We need to be able to value leveraging all this data we have to become predictive and engage you before you become too sick. And when you are ill, we need to value the data that will help us take care of you better, more precise. And for us, that's a big deal. I'm a physician. Um, uh, that's a big deal for us to think that way and see um, technology, AI is augmenting my abilities, not replacing it, but to embrace that as a new way to deliver healthcare and then find out ways to put dollars against that in a different model than we have currently. So Genesis, obviously a huge game changer for all the things that you just talked about in terms of integrating data and giving you data availability across the direct care system. How, how satisfied are you at that point with getting comparable data from the purchased care networks? Because that's been a challenge in the past, right? There's been a lot of faxing of documents back and forth in the past. Yeah, um, that's, that's a great point. So part of the integration, everything I just shared with you, I share with Humana and HealthNet, and they're on this journey with us. And so we, we do work on what information and data. We can get a fair amount of data right now from our uh, managed care support contractors, prescription data, right, which is actually rich in helping take care of individuals. We can, we can see in the network inside of our system what prescriptions are being written. So we have health information exchanges where we're able to move and see information that is going on in the network. What we've been struggling with is, is if you're in a, if you, if your primary care doc is on an electronic record that's in a separate practice, seeing that information real time, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. But getting that information pulled into our system, absolutely working with Humana and HealthNet on how we can do that closer to real time, because that's the other challenge. And we get a lot of claims data. Claims data helps us in some areas for sure. Getting that closer to real time will help us be a little more precise and a little more predictive uh, in taking care of patients. But getting that individual clinical record is still a long pole in the tent. But a lot, we do get a lot of data already. And I think that that's not well understood. And that's probably a good transition to start talking a bit about how you're trying to change some of the incentives in the purchase care system. I, I know you need to be a little bit careful here because the next generation of TRICARE contracts is under protest right now. But I think there are some things that we can say that are going to be true no matter what the outcome of that is, like the fact that you're trying to incentivize value over volume here. Talk, talk a bit about what that looks like and, and, and the overall direction you're trying to take those TRICARE networks. Yeah, um, and so one of the things we're trying to do uh, high on the list is, is, is 
bring care back to where it needs to be, wherever that's in a direct care system or in the purchase care. We need that to be a conscious decision and not a default decision. So leveraging technology, really pushing a team hard to see referral management, right? A very concrete, right? So in the TRICARE contract, we incentivize the managed care support contractor pushing cases back into the direct care system when that's the right thing for the patient. And facilitating, not just saying it, but creating the processes that allow us to actually do that, leveraging some of the technologies, absolutely, you see that in the contract. So that's one example of getting the right value. Because when you bring the case back inside the direct system, A, it allows us to deliver high quality care, which is, is non-negotiable, whether it's in a network or a direct system, and we have capacity in our system, it's a better value for the overall system because we have capacity in our system, right? And then our, 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 our direct care system also trains and educates. So now we have patients that we need for our graduate medical education programs. It also maintains our clinical competencies that we need to do in a deployed setting. So there's a lot of value in being able to work with the managed care support contractor, incentivizing them to push care back into the healthcare system. Uh, and and it, overall, I believe it brings the total cost of care down. Lieutenant General Talita Crossland is our guest on this special edition of On DoD. She's the director of the Defense Health Agency, and she's back with us for a few more minutes after one last break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we wrap up our conversation with Lieutenant General Talita Crossland, the director of the Defense Health Agency, talking about DHA's new strategic plan and some of the new directions it's headed 10 years after the agency was first stood up. Let's let's talk a bit about this idea of stabilizing the system. It's mentioned that 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 phrase is mentioned a couple times in the strategic plan. And, and I'm just curious what you see as the areas of current instability or suboptimal stability. The Japan stuff we talked about earlier is probably an example of that, I'm guessing. But but what are the biggest areas that you want to focus on there? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking that question, Jared. Um, when I talk about stabilization, I am talking about the director and the headquarters being in the position, going from transition to execution and landing in a place such that we can do our jobs. And so a big key muscle movement for stabilizing our system was getting those nine networks stood up. It was being able to literally, as the director, have confidence that I understand that there's an issue in Japan, that we understand what that issue is, that that issue is worked and managed in a cogent way at Echelon, from the MTF up to that middle level, which are now our defense health networks, and at the headquarters level, that we can see ourselves, that we have the right metrics, that we're able to give good guidance and direction, and that the whole enterprise can move out with unity of effort. That's what stabilization was for me. And I actually believe we have achieved a lot of that. I, I feel I'm, I'm particularly grateful, proud, excited, that in the 10 months I've been a director, the team has moved aggressively to get those networks stood up. And by the end of next fiscal year, right? So the end of this fiscal year, we will have those staffs in place so that those networks are fully able 
to support the military treatment facilities and interface with the managed care support contractors. And this headquarters is organized to be able to give that information flow down, come up and make good decisions across the entire direct system. That's what I mean when I talk about stabilization. It is literally that the agency has gone from focusing on moving things over to actually running those things. And that includes MRDC and good governance. That includes public health, being able to support uh, mission sets that uh, like Red Hill or mission sets like getting COVID out to the MTFs, the vaccines, the va influenza vaccines out to the MTFs that are, co you know, CONUS, as well as over. We got to be able to do all of that and run the system in a, a consistent way such that we can feel good with being accountable for our job. That's what stabilization is for me. And I think one key piece of this is, is what you're overall workforce provider mix looks like in this, you know, more stabilized post-transition world, because there's been, there's been some back and forth over the years about how many military medical billets are going to be in the system. We need to hire more civilians. Is there a overall answer to, to what that mix looks like, or is it a, it depends? Yeah, I think um, there's a, there's a, a good understanding of what we need, right? So we can look at all our military treatment facilities, and we can say this is what we need at this military treatment facility with the assumption that today, not in perpetuity, but today, this is what I need that treatment facility to deliver. And then there's a conversation on whether that need is a military need and can be met by the military, or if that need is a civilian need and can be met by the civilian. Right. And, 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 and obviously, Army, Navy and Air Force was doing this before there was a DHA. And so I think it's in, in, in fairness to all, we should be very clear that that did move to the agency. The needs and the requirements moved to the agency. What the challenge is, is day to day with the, what's available and what we can afford to man those requirements. So as the services work through, do I have this thing to put here? Right. Do I have this subspecialist any longer? That's that's where it gets, you know, that's where the art and science starts to come. Can we hire and buy and buy it? Right. Can our workforce, as you as most people know, the workforce is challenged in healthcare right now. And there's a significant part of the workforce as part of our team that delivers care in those locations. And so our model requires a certain number of registered nurses. If the number of registered nurses really don't exist in the industry, and we're all competing for that number, we've got to get good at competing, but we also have to figure out how we meet that requirement differently. And that's where the technology and the model, you got to look at your model now, right? If you need 100 nurses and only 80 nurses exist out there, you know, our answer can't be too bad. Our answer has to be, okay, let's go back and look at another way to get after that requirement. And sometimes that other way may be a, a military person, that may be technology, but most likely it's going to look at where else do we do we spread things out in the short term, but long term, how do we change how we deliver the care? The the military manpower component of this seems like it's probably a bit challenging. And and correct me if my conception of this is is wrong, but as I understand it, basically you own the military treatment facilities now, but the military services still have the man, train, and equip function, so they're responsible for for providing that military manpower when you need it. Are there clear channels at this point where you can have conversations with the military services to communicate your requirements for, for th that military manpower and, and they're able to provide what you need? How's that all going? 
Yeah, what a, that's another fantastic question. Yes, there are, right? I think one of, um, uh, I'll describe what we just did, right? The first step was figuring out what each of those facilities needed. And then as part of our, our plan, right, DHA's delivering healthcare, my focus is making sure our large medical centers, which also train the mil train military folks, right? It's responsible those facilities are making sure that the military have trained and ready service members. It also delivers care. And so we, we have a plan, we have a business plan. And I took those locations that are our priority for the business plan of keeping the system stable and upright. And then I laid that out to, right? My team sat down with Army, Navy, and Air Force. And we they show us what they're already putting against that mission set. And then we literally said, okay, what else can you do to help with some of our shortfalls in these locations as they balance their responsibilities for the operational force? And we do have a venue and we just sat down and we went through that and we identified where Army, Navy and Air Force can move people to further help our mission. Step one is to make sure everybody understands DHA runs the military treatment facilities on behalf of the military departments in the DOD. We don't run the facilities just for DHA. We run the facilities as part of a military health system. And in that vein, we all sit around a table and we work through what we're going to be able to put against that, that requirement. And we just did that. We'll take that forward uh, in another form in a couple of weeks to the senior leaders of the department, show them what we came up with, and then offer an opportunity to get more feedback and whether we, you know, we need to go back and try harder or, or something, or yep, that's our plan. And then the services will push the faces against that plan. And then we'll, we'll measure, that's the metrics, how well we're executing that. How well are we doing what we all agreed to do? What's the accountability for our behavior based on the plan we just worked through together? We're, we're just down to our last couple minutes here. And I think probably a good way to end is, is you know, Look back just a little bit to what your predecessors may have done to to put you in a place where you feel like you've you've inherited a system that's post transition. What are the most important reforms, moving parts that have that have happened within DHA up until this point to set you up success? What what's the agency gotten right from your point of view? Uh, I think the agency's gotten lots of things right. Probably the 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 hardest piece was for us to describe the end state. Right. As you said earlier, it felt like the agency was in um, transition in perpetuity. And I believe uh, our department leadership did a good job of saying, here's in-state, here's the, the, the people, the resources, um, and we are done transitioning. We've moved these things. And now I am positioned as a director to focus on executing. I think the combat support agency function, as you again pointed out, that's been there since the agency stood up and it doesn't get a lot of focus, but that team has been moving forward year after year, honing, focusing so that I could sit here and describe that we have LNOs and all the COCOMs. We are now able to say, these are the functions. We're now able to talk to COCOMs and get assessed, right? All of that is growth. Uh, there are lots of more growth we have to do. Absolutely. A lot more, I call it maturing the headquarters on the day to day. Um, probably our biggest um, thing that we still have work to do is getting the governance right. So how do we make those decisions at a level above the DHA and the services for the department to say, yep, this is where we want to be. 
Uh, so we're still maturing that. But my predecessors worked very hard to get DHA to a point where I can now say transition's over and we're now positioned to focus on execution. All right. Unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it there for time. I want to thank our guest this week, Lieutenant General Talita Crossland, the director of the Defense Health Agency. Thanks so much for doing this and taking all the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for a special edition of On DoD on Federal News Network. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can find the full episode anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DoD. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbia. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.